My name is Mac Owens. I'm the uh, Dean of Academics here at the Institute of World Politics. Welcome to you all. Before we kick things off, I'd like to give a little commercial about IWP for those of you who uh, don't know about us. Um, we're a graduate school, independent graduate school, not associated with any other uh, university or college. Uh, graduate School of National Security Affairs. We have three full master's degrees, and we have a, also a professional and uh, uh, professional and executive national, uh, master's degrees, and 18, uh, 18 uh, certificates. We are focused primarily on uh, theory and practice. Uh, most of our professors are scholar practitioners. So if you're taking a course on counterintelligence here, uh, you're going to be taught by someone who's actually done it rather than just read about it in a book. And um, here's our president, John Lutowski. And uh, stop by to say hello. Oh, one of the, 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 the cool things about being the academic dean here is I get to invite my friends to talk. <laughs> and uh, um, I'm a great admirer of Andy McCarthy. He's a prolific writer. And so you people who read anything know he's at the National Review Institute and he uh, writes frequently, almost daily, I think, these days, for National Review on national security law and, um, and the like. Especially on the intersection these days of international uh, terrorism and our national security law. He uh, is, uh, let us say, got his start in this when he was the uh, main prosecutor of the blind sheikh uh, who was behind the bombing of the World Trade, uh, World Trade Center in 1993. Um, a conviction, and uh, but but of course from that experience, uh, he has really focused his attention on that. He's the author of seven books, uh, one of which is called Willful Blindness, which of course is a memoir based on what went on during that period of time, and uh, more recently a book called the um, called the Grand Jihad. So he knows this stuff. He knows it extremely well. And I'm real tickled to have him here. And just to let you know, too, that in December, I'm very excited about this, uh, we're going to have an event on the Hill where he and Seth Gorka are going to be talking about this. They'll do a, a little, probably greatly, I don't I'm probably <laughs> too old. You, you probably don't remember that anyway. But uh, a discussion on that, on that on the Hill, but I think would be really wonderful. So uh, with that, please join me in welcoming Andy McCarthy. Thank you, Seb. Well, thank you so much, Mac. Uh, Seb and I are actually hoping it won't be Abbott and Costello, so we'd be, we'd be quite content with, uh, with Huntley and Brinkley. Um, it's, it's just a, an honor uh, to be here. And uh, it's not only an honor to be here, it's an honor to be here and speak about this topic. Um, the, the tragedy that someone will write about someday is that we started, or continued rather, to talk about what we're going to talk about here today uh, almost a full generation later as if it were a revelation to this day, as if we had learned basically nothing from the time that it first knocked on America's door as a problem 
uh, and as a challenge until today. Um, back in 1993, as, uh, as Dr. Owens mentioned, uh, I was a fairly seasoned prosecutor. In fact, I was, uh, I was probably of a mind at that point in time to think about what happened next or happens next. I, uh, I had been a prosecutor for about eight years. I'd done you know, a variety of really uh, neat cases. I had been very fortunate to be in the right place at the right time uh, and come to the office at a time that was actually very exciting. It was under uh, uh, Rudy Giuliani at the time was our U.S. attorney. We had uh, cases on every organized crime family in every one in America, which happened to be centered in New York. We did major prosecutions on Wall Street. It was a proud tradition of the office that we were a groundbreaking office, that we not only addressed uh, problems that people had failed to address, but that we thought of innovative ways to do it. Um, and notwithstanding all of that, we were no more prepared for terrorism than anyone was. Uh, and when I talk about terrorism, I, I'm mainly talking about systematic international terrorism that we have had in this wave that really begins in the late 1980s, early 1990s, and continues to this very day. Uh, when I ordinarily uh, talk about this, it's not just the legal aspect of it, although that's incredibly important. Uh, but it's the, the intelligence aspect of it, which is what we still haven't come to grips with. Uh, Mac was nice enough to mention that my first book, my memoir, called Willful Blindness. Um, I wish I had trademarked that before it became compulsory blindness, which is uh, what it seems to become certainly in the last uh, more than eight years, which is a big part of the problem. This is not just an Obama administration problem. This is something that really goes back, it's bipartisan, it goes back three administrations, it goes back right from the beginning, and it is a refusal to come to grips with what it is that fuels this challenge against us. Um, and if I could just digress from the legal aspect of it uh, slightly for a moment uh, to, to point out something that changed my view of it uh, and I think changes the view of most people uh, of it when they, when they first hear it. When, I, when the World Trade Center was bombed in 1993, uh, I had about as much depth in Islam as anybody with a reasonably good education in the United States, which is to say, not much. And I wanted to believe, just like everyone wanted to believe, and certainly like we were saying as a government, that we did not have a problem or a challenge that emanated out of a particular belief system. The story that we put out, and it's really the same story that's told, is that there were a handful, relatively speaking, of marginal, dissatisfied, uh, disgruntled people who were doing violent extremism for no discernible reason, and that their beliefs and their actions shouldn't be read upon uh, any sect of any religion, much less one of, as we say again and again, one of the world's great religions. And Islam obviously is a religious tradition that has about 1.6 billion adherents worldwide. So one could easily understand 
the impulse not to want to condemn or paint with too broad a brush, given the, uh, number one, it's not right to paint with too broad a brush, but also given the breadth of what we were, uh, what we were talking about. So we undertook, I think, to find every possible rationale under the sun for what was happening other than the obvious one. But I think the answer to what we, uh, to, to, the, to the cause of what we were dealing with was right in front of us and we really didn't want to see it. And it was most obvious in my own case if you think of the blind shake. Um, Omar Abdul Rahman, who was portrayed by our government as a wanton, ruthless killer, uh, was anything but an irrational maniac, even if his ideas seemed heinous to us and, and are heinous in a Western civilization uh, frame of reference. Um, he was a doctor of Islamic jurisprudence, graduated from Al-Azhar University, which is the seat of Sunni Islamic learning since the 10th century. He was a recognized, globally recognized authority in a strain of Islam that has behind it 14 and even if it's not the dominant Islam in the world, it may be the dynamic Islam in the world, and it certainly has hundreds of millions of adherents. That was the source of his authority to command acts of terrorism. But take a step back and think about him for just a second. Uh, he was by then, at the time we arrested him, I believe in his uh, early 50s. He not only was blind from very early childhood, uh, he had basically every malady you can think of, bad ticker, uh, other physical ailments. Uh, he was somebody who was utterly incapable of doing anything that would be useful to a terrorist organization couldn't make a bomb, couldn't conduct a political assassination, couldn't hijack a plane. The only thing he could do for a terrorist organization was lead it. Now, why would that be? There was only one explanation for it, and that is that he was a master of the ideology that is the basis for the threat against us. And the fact of his renown, the fact of his mastery over, over this doctrine, uh, which is the enemy's threat doctrine, was the sole and only source of his authority to command acts of terrorism. But he certainly had that authority. And what we were able to prove in our trial, which is something that has continued to be denied to this day, is that in the literal scriptures of Islam, there are commands to violence. They are mediated by influential Muslim, I don't like to call them clerics because the, the backbone of this ideology is Sharia, which is Islamic law. These are really jurists, they're not clerics. But these influential figures mediate this literal doctrine and they inspire young Muslims, mostly young Muslim men, to commit acts of terrorism. And there was a linear aspect of this that was unmistakable if you were allowed to see it and to prove it. And when I make a joke about the difference between willful blindness and compulsory blindness, I think the biggest difference between now and then 
is back then, it's not like there wasn't political correctness. It's not like there wasn't a need down in the White House and in Maine Justice and elsewhere to go out and try to absolve Islam uh, or any interpretation of Islam uh, as the catalyst of the threat that we were under. That existed back then just like it does now. But the difference was in the four corners of our trial, we were permitted to prove without limitation exactly what the, uh, what the motive, what the ideology was that drove people to commit these acts of mass murder. I've said, and I'm, I'll continue to say it as we go on this afternoon, probably every bad thing that there is to say about using the civilian courts as the tip of the spear, so to speak, in counterterrorism. But let me tell you what the one really good thing about the courts is uh, that has never been replicated, to my knowledge, any place else in the government. And that is that in a jury trial, plain people, regular everyday Americans who decide our cases, um, they expect to be shown in a compelling way not only what happened, we don't have to just prove activities and conspiracies and the like, they also want to know why it happened. If you don't give people a rational understanding of what motivated people to act, it is impossible to convict them most of the time in a criminal trial, even if motive is not required to be proved, as, as is the case for most criminal offenses. So if you're going to prove a jury case, actually have to be real with the jury about what it is that happened and why it happened. Political correctness has no place uh, in a courtroom. So no matter what was going on in the White House or Maine Justice or any place else, in our courtroom, we were actually able to prove what happened and why it happened. And as a result of that, for all their downsides, the terrorism cases of the 1990s, and ours was one of the first, uh, there were a series of them thereafter. Um, but those cases still are a better intelligent product, intelligence product than a lot of what has been put out by the intelligence community. We weren't, for example, dealing with second and third hand sources. We were dealing with the actual people who were not only committing the attacks, but commanding the attacks. Uh, and there was no limitation on us back then uh, in terms of politics or any, any, anything else. Uh, insofar as proving it, establishing it in court. Um, if you flash forward, I don't even want to say how many years it is, but I guess it's, uh, it's about 25 years since then. Um, there's not only a really willful um, conscious avoidance of what motivates the enemy, it's now become compulsory in the sense that the government as an institution has tried to pair what the community is taught, uh, is instructed about uh, what the enemy's ideology is. The main strategy of counterterrorism in the current administration is called uh, uh, confronting violent, countering violent extremism. Uh, they will no longer even say terrorism. The Quran says that we are commanded to strike terror into the hearts of the enemies of Allah. So the word terror 
is verboten. Um, they won't, it has to be violent extremism because they deny that there's an ideological nexus between what it is people are taught and believe and what it is that impels them to act. And as a result, our agents, not only on the intelligence side, but on the law enforcement side, are forbidden to take decisive action uh, on an investigate, from an investigative standpoint or from an intelligence standpoint until there is some evidence that there is an imminent or even worse many times, they can't take action until after an attack has happened, by which point obviously it's way too late. So to me this, the sin of this is that we have known uh, for a generation what we should be looking for and we are conducting ourselves as if it's still a mystery. And then we wonder why uh, not only the jihadist organizations are now beginning to metastasize so that you know, in 1993, we didn't even have Al-Qaeda yet, not, not as it exists today, or it existed in 2001. Today, we have Al-Qaeda basically resurgent to where it was just prior to 2001, and we have the Islamic State, which is just a breakaway faction of Al-Qaeda, which in its own way has become uh, equally a threat. And we also have, in our own country, an uptick not of 9-11 style attacks, but an uptick nonetheless of terrorism attacks. And a large part of the reason why there's an increased rate of success, I'm convinced, is that it's been communicated to our intelligence agents and law enforcement personnel in no uncertain terms that they are to sit on their hands until there's evidence that they can prosecute until there's evidence that is at a ripe enough stage that, that they can feel safe intervening. Because if they do anything that smacks of investigating people because of their ideology, even if it's an ideology that says, you know, America is the worst place in the world and it deserves to be attacked, they have to hold back until there's some evidence that a plot is underway. And very often, if you're not looking for evidence, the plots are underway and you detect them way, way too late to do anything uh, positive about them. So how did we get from here to there, there to here? Um, the, the trajectory of terrorism prosecutions and how this all unfolded uh, is testament to the fact that most things that happen of any importance are totally unplanned. And, you know, if you take an objective look at them, they end up looking exactly that way. Um, in the United States, uh, in 1993, we did not have a history to speak of, of international terrorism attacks, certainly not on a systematic basis. There was a, there were attacks here and there. Most of the terrorism, or what was called terrorism that we had, uh, was of a domestic nature, uh, but certainly not uh, anything like we have seen from the late 80s, early 90s going forward. Um, our law was totally ill-equipped for it. Uh, our agencies and institutions were totally ill-equipped for it. Um, the, one of the big issues in counterterrorism is whether to use the courts or to try to use some other system. And we're going to talk about both of those things uh, today. 
But how did we end up in the courts in the first place? You know, when this is argued, especially when you, when you listen to the experts who argue it, you would think that somebody made a considered decision to bring terrorism cases to the US courts. And that's not remotely how it happened. Um, by its charter, the CIA, like a lot of the activity that goes on in the intelligence community, is not permitted to operate inside the United States. Okay? Um, our military, for the most part, is not permitted to conduct operations in the United States under posse comitatus restrictions and the like. The only institutions in government that were trained for critical incidents, and I'm not just talking about terrorism now, I'm talking about any catastrophic event, intended or unintended, were the groups of people that we, we popularly call first responders now. Uh, the police, the fire departments, emergency medical technicians, uh, and the like. Those were the only institutions domestically that were really even drilling for what to do in, in big catastrophic uh, uh, incidents. And frankly, once the Cold War was over and the curtain was, was deemed to be dropped on that in around 1990, uh, there were people who fantasized that there wouldn't even be any critical incidents. Not only man-made, I think they thought the laws of nature would be suspended too. We were just going to have peace and harmony forever and ever. Um, but the fact of the matter is that when the World Trade Center was bombed, uh, on February 26, 1993, um, the people who responded to it were these first responders. And it wasn't even initially thought of, at least in the first hours, as a law enforcement incident, uh, incident uh, much less an act of war. The first reports were that a transformer had exploded. But what we find in a very short uh, in very short order, and I'll get to why that, why that is, or why that was, uh, is that a urea nitrate bomb, about 1,400 pounds, fairly sophisticated chemical explosive, was detonated in the uh, basement level of the World Trade Center at about 12.17 in the afternoon. We proved in tr at trial, by the way, that at that time of the day, in that congested part of Manhattan, uh, there were anywhere from 60 to 100,000 people typically in that small area at the uh, tail end of Manhattan. Uh, the bomb was big enough that the, what the conspirators hoped would happen would, was that one tower would be taken out at a key point and it would be caused to tilt into the other tower and take the two of them down. So the hope was that they would take at least one down uh, and hopefully get both of them. Uh, but not content with that, the chemical bomb was also aerated with cyanide. They had hydrogen tanks and they laced it with cyanide. The thought was they wanted to kill thousands of people not only at the epicenter of the attack, but as far out as they could disperse uh, the waves of the explosion. The goal was to kill tens of thousands of Americans. And I still think to this day, one of the great miracles uh, that we've witnessed that is almost never spoken about is that only um, six adults, one of whom was uh, about seven and a half months 
pregnant uh, were killed in the attack. There wasn't, I mean, if you take a step back, there wasn't a 9-11 grade response because there wasn't 9-11 grade casualties, but that was strictly fortuity. Uh, it, it certainly had nothing to do with what they intended. It was just the way that it worked out. And maybe history would have been different uh, had the casualty count been more approximate to what they were hoping for than what thankfully and miraculously happened. Uh, but the low casualty count did uh, provide a rationale for people to not scrutinize this the way that they uh, obviously felt that we had to begin taking this threat more seriously after 9-11. Um, but anyhow, after the bombing, the police and the other first responders, including the FBI, um, began their investigation. And very quickly, the FBI, which, um, you know, whatever you think of the different kinds of work it does, is as far as uh, domestic uh, uh, police enforcement is concerned, they are peerless when it comes to forensic analysis. Uh, and they found out in a very short period of time that the, the incident had been a bombing. And they were able to you know, go, go down there, conduct their investigation, and, and figure out that it had been a bomb. Uh, they were able to um, recover. They were able to identify the vehicle in which the bomb was housed. They were able to get a vehicle identification off that number, realized it was a rental truck, and traced from there um, the, the people who had done it uh, on the basis of being able to run the rental information. At least that was the story that was put out at the beginning. Um, you know, the ugly underbelly of the story, we had had a, uh, an informant into the conspiracy uh, and kicked him out of the case because he was basically uncontrollable um, about seven months before the bombing. Uh, when he refused at the FBI's uh, insistence to tape record some of the subjects of the investigation. And the backstory of that, um, which is something that recurred throughout our prosecution, is that there was so little terrorism uh, back in the late 80s and early 90s that terrorism in law enforcement was basically relegated to a backwater. It was not even handled in the criminal investigative part of the FBI. Uh, it was part of their foreign counterintelligence side of the house. Uh, a word on that. I had been a prosecutor for eight years, and I barely knew that the FBI had a night job. Um, you know, most prosecutors work only with the FBI's criminal investigative division, which investigates and, and helps the Justice Department prosecute ordinary crimes, and high level, low level, but their business is proving criminal cases in court. It turns out that the FBI has a whole other mission that most of the country didn't know much about uh, up until the wave of terrorism, and that is its Foreign Counterintelligence Division, which is now called its National Security Division. They've kind of um, restructured since the wave of terrorism began. Um, but this, this part of the FBI's mission is not dedicated to collecting evidence and proving crimes in court. Um, what their mission is, is domestic security. And it's a difficult mission compared to, uh, say, what the 
international or overseas intelligence agencies have to do because they are bound by ordinary constitutional law even though they have different statutory sources of authority. But their job is not to prosecute cases. It's to prevent uh, mass murder attacks and prevent espionage. And most of their mission uh, through the 60s and 70s uh, was anti-KGB work. Now, that sounds kind of sexy, right? Um, and if you're a James Bond fan, it sounds, sounds great. You probably have a very different idea of what the Foreign Counterintelligence Division was. My experience of the Foreign Counterintelligence Division was that it was a very mixed bag of agents. You had people who were very, very good, who were intelligence-minded, uh, who were just what we needed for this kind of work because they were good about, about put, pulling together the pieces of the mosaic and, and being able to see it. And then you had other people um, who, frankly, um, were agents that one wouldn't be overly confident of how their work would hold up in criminal cases where defense lawyers pick it apart and judges scrutinize it. And I would say that probably too many of those people were shunted into foreign counterintelligence, uh, and that meant that courts would basically never look at their work, uh, and they would never get impeached by defense lawyers, and it would never be examined. And they operated under rules that were uh, very loosey-goosey compared to the strictures that uh, criminal investigators have to follow or else their cases will collapse in court. Uh, so what we had in the investigation of the first World Trade Center attack is an informant who initially was treated like an intelligence informant. Uh, and the idea was he was going to report to the FBI on radical Islamic groups. There had been a little spurt of activity um, that, that mainly uh, was most notorious for the killing of Meyer Kahani, who was the founder of the, uh, of the Jewish Defense League in a fairly famous New York homicide uh, in 1990. And when we look back on that now, uh, we see that all of the seeds and all of the evidence that you needed to have in order to figure out that there was a jihadist enterprise in the New York area was there, but it was mainly ignored. And it was ignored because of the same sort of political correctness that we deal with today. The New York City Police Department, right after Kahani was killed, immediately put out the story that this was the work of a lone gunman. It certainly didn't have anything to do with religious ideology. And in fact, when, they, when the agents went through the home and work locker of Nocer, they found a lot of the evidence that we actually ended up using to prove the jihadist enterprise that bombed the World Trade Center. It turned out that Nocer, along with a number of the people who were the actual bombers of the World Trade Center had been training in the New York area since 1988-89. They had even been photo photographed by surveillance agents of the FBI following them to do jihadist training on consecutive weekends in the summer of 1989. Uh, the Bureau ended up backing off, by the way, because uh, the people they were investigating suggested that they were being singled out because of their religion. So a lot of the story circa 1990 is the same story that we're dealing with today. And the very people that the FBI was taking pictures of in 1989 turned out to be the guys who bombed the World Trade Center uh, in 1993. 
and then try an even more ambitious plot. Simultaneous bombings of the Lincoln and Holland tunnels, uh, the FBI's lower Manhattan headquarters, and the United uh, Nations complex on the east side of, uh, east side of Manhattan. Um, by the way, th there's a lot of people who say we ought to try to negotiate with terrorists in order to, um, uh, to try to establish a meeting of minds with them, maybe bring them around, show that uh, they really are rational actors. Uh, when people make that argument, I try to point out to them that um, they picked out the United Nations as a target in our case. Uh, because, as everyone knows, uh, the United Nations is a tool of American dominion over the, uh, over the planet and is just our puppet operating the in the world. Now, anyone who knows anything about the United Nations knows that that's total fiction, but they believed it. Uh, so this is the mentality that you're, uh, that you're dealing with. Anyway, um, how we ended up in civilian court. Um, because we had had an informant into the plot and the FBI had let him go seven months before the World Trade Center was bombed, once they realized it was a bombing and got the name of the guy who had rented the, uh, the rental truck, the rider van that was used to house the bomb, uh, the, uh, the fellows down at the FBI went, oh my god. And they realized that the guys that they had been investigating for over a year turned out to be the guys who uh, tried to blow up the building. And I think that may have had maybe a tad more to do with why people were rounded up so quickly than just the forensic miracle of the uh, investigation in the first week after the attack. But the point is that within about a week, we had six people in custody. And I don't think. You should understand this. Nobody ever sat around a table and said, is this a war or is this a crime? Do we want to go civilian court with this? Should we think about military commissions? Should we, are these guys enemy combatants or are they defense? Nobody went through that. Nobody gave it a second of thought. And I don't think that was just because of the casualty can. I think it was because of the way the attack was responded to. The police respond. The FBI responds. Within six or seven days, you have six people in custody. Under the law, if you have six people in custody and you don't let them out on bail, you have to indict them within 10 days. Once they get indicted, a federal judge orders a trial date. And you have motions that start. And there are hearings. And this isn't a, a situation where anybody thought about whether this was the right way to do it. Uh, it was a situation where you were in the process. And the process has its own rhythm. It's got its own rules. And nobody really thinks about them, particularly when you're in a situation where you're dealing not only with the need to prosecute people who are in custody, but you learn that while you're prosecuting the first batch, the same cell is not only trying to break the first batch out of prison, if they can, but they also want to blow up half of New York. So you're doing trial preparation. You're doing a whole other investigation. You have an informant who you've pleaded to go back into the, into the investigation who is a handful to handle. Nobody had the time or took the time at that point to say, is this the right way to do this? Why is that so important? You know, I think one of the real problems with the way that uh, counterterrorism has been handled for 25 years 
is most of the, um, the dialogue about it and most of the programs, for example, that I get to speak at or I get invited to speak at, most of those take place in a law school setting. Law schools gave more attention to this and have for the last 20 years than, than anyone else has. And that's a good thing. There's no reason that they shouldn't. But here's the problem in terms of the mindset, because the way the discussion is framed in the law schools turns out to be the way it gets imposed on the rest of the country, right? So if you take any group of ordinary Americans and you ask them, do the civilian courts work as a counterterrorism tool? If you tell them that's the question before the House that we're going to discuss, what they want to know is, that means, do prosecutions in civilian court make us safer? Is it going to advance our national security? That's the question that's in the ordinary person's mind. In the law schools, it's quite different. I don't mean to suggest that they're indifferent to national security, but the first question that gets asked in law school or the first impression that you get from the question asked in law school, do the courts work against counterterrorism, is not a national security response. It's a due process response. They want to know, can we have enough due process so that we can try these cases in a way that allows us to protect whatever national defense information that we need to protect, but at the same time, we can give these defendants enough due process that we can hold up our head high about the result at the end and people will be convicted if they should be convicted and the results will have integrity and they'll be upheld on appeal and the like. That's a very different set of considerations than what I think most Americans' consideration is, which is what do we need to do to advance the security of the United States? To most Americans, the quantum of due process that's given to terrorism suspects and defendants is not something that is of no importance, but it's way down the list of important things compared to uh, making the country safe. So a lot of, uh, a lot of our policy, I'm afraid, uh, is influenced by the fact that this challenge ended up in the courts in the first place and that the analysis of it has been dominated by the law schools and the legal professions rather than uh, having a, a uh, broader consideration of it. Think about the 9-11 Commission. 9-11 Commission had almost everybody on the 9-11 Commission was a lawyer, right? A lawyer or a national, uh, a lawyer or a former political official or both, right? There wasn't any intelligence professional on the 9-11 Commission. You know, there were, there were some people who had some military experience, but by and large, it was looked at as a legal analysis. Uh, and, it, and I think from the very beginning, it's largely been a legal analysis masquerading uh, as a national security analysis. And that's really been bad for our national security, and it's been bad for our ability to prevent attacks um, rather than prosecute people successfully after they've been committed. Because if you're in a law enforcement mindset, you don't do investigations until you have evidence of a crime. And that's exactly what you should want in connection with the vast run of crime that we have to deal with. It is not what you want in national security, where the failure to act in a, in a timely way uh, can be the difference between prevention of a mass murder attack and, and thousands of dead 
Americans. So um, the fact that we ended up in, in civilian court in the first place was kind of an unthinking uh, result. And even if we can be forgiven for how it happened because of the rhythm of the, uh, of, of the procedures that apply, uh, it, it's something that should have been corrected a lot sooner than 2001. I mean, essentially what happened is we went along from 1993 until 2001, and the attacks against our country got more and more regular and more and more audacious. Right? Our case, the Trade Center bombing, was followed by, uh, actually in the same case, we had this plot on New York City landmarks. The next year they had a plot, they, they called, we called it the Manila Air Plot, they were going to blow uh, airliners out of the sky over the Pacific. They did a test bombing and they killed one uh, Japanese tourist. But the plan, uh, which does have the germs of the 9-11 plot in it, uh, was to take these, uh, take 11 or 12 of them out of the sky uh, simultaneously or reasonably simultaneously. Um, that was followed in uh, 1996 by the Kobar Towers attack, which is probably a joint plot between Iran Hezbollah and Al-Qaeda, which have all worked together since the early 1990s, uh, and ended up killing 19 U.S. airmen in uh, the Kobar Towers in Saudi Arabia. Um, a very short time after that, 1998, we have the simultaneous bombings of the American embassies in uh, Nairobi, Kenya, and Dar es Salaam, Tanzania, killing over 200 people. Uh, shortly after that, you have the attack on the USS Cole, in which 17 members of our Navy were killed in a bombing by Al-Qaeda in the Gulf of, uh, of uh, Yemen, of Aden. Uh, and finally, the 9-11 attacks. So we have an eight-year period where the attacks are getting bigger and broader, uh, and yet um, we're continuing, the enemy continues to use bombs, we continue to use subpoenas and indictments. Um, we basically signal to the enemy that we're not taking this seriously. They think we're in a war. We think we're in a crime wave. Uh, and we act the part. Uh, this can only have had an encouraging effect on them, and it did. Um, and if you think about the cases, even the cases that we did, um, I totaled up at one point, I think I, I put this in my book, the, um, the number of cases that we tried from 1993 to 2001 can seem like a lot because when you have a, a trial proceeding with all of the hearings and the different trials, a few defendants can be made to look like a lot of defendants, particularly when they all have uh, Arabic names which are not familiar to most Americans. It just seems dizzying and it seems like the, the number of people is, uh, is large. I think we prosecuted 29 people. Uh, 29. And either 14 or 16 of them were directly tied to the World Trade Center plot of 1993, meaning after the 93 attack there were very few people that we actually were able to grab and prosecute. Um, think about it. The major icons of modern international Islamic terrorism, Osama bin Laden. Right? Um, when he was killed, 
in the compound in Pakistan in 2011. He had been under indictment by the Justice Department for 12 years. Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, who was the architect of the 9-11 attacks, had been under indictment by the Justice Department since 1994. Iman Zawahiri, who was Al-Qaeda's uh, now chief, who was bin Laden's deputies, deputy all those years ago, um, he has been under indictment by the Justice Department for 17 years. So when you ask, does the criminal justice system work against terrorism, you know, if the question is, can we convict the people that we manage to get to court, um, sure we can. That's never been in dispute. It's never been in doubt. But the question is, is it effective to make the civilian court the key part of your counterterrorism strategy when most of the people, the thousands of people who are threats to the United States are operating outside our country, outside the place, in places where our courts systems writs don't run, in cases where, in places where our investigative agencies don't operate, and when we can't get our hands on them. President Obama, after the, after the Benghazi attack, promised he was going to bring everyone to justice, right? We have indicted exactly one person since an attack that took place in 2012, and as to which many, many of the players have been identified. One indictment, one guy under indictment, so forth. And not tried, by the way. And his trial is put off until the late part of 2017. So the criminal justice system will always look like it's a raging success because we're looking at the wrong metric. Um, what the Justice Department tells you when you challenge the use of the, of the criminal justice system for this problem is that they bat a thousand in terms of people who get convicted. Everybody they bring into court gets convicted. Now, that also includes one of the guys who was involved in the embassy bombings, who they tried a few years back, Galani, um, who was acquitted of, I think it was 200 and, 285 out of 286 counts he was acquitted on. So they lost 285 counts, but they count that as a win because the one count he got convicted on, the judge gave him a life sentence. So that's one of those ones where, you know, the defense lawyer runs around and brags how he beat the government. Well, the guy does a life sentence. That's, uh, that's how that works. Um, but in terms of, you know, putting that case aside, which truly is aberrational, virtually everybody's been convicted on virtually every count of every indictment. The problem is it's a paltry number of people that you can actually get into court. Uh, and when you're in a national security challenge as opposed to a criminal justice situation, a lot of the people that you have to operate against, and I should preface this by saying I'm a lawyer. I'm, an, I'm not a military guy, but I've dealt with enough of the military in dealing with this problem to know this pretty basic piece of information, which is that on the battlefield, you operate on intelligence. Uh, and it's basically often intelligence that's not enough to convict beyond a reasonable doubt in court. But you can't not act on it because not acting on it is the difference between life and death. Think about the basic assumptions that we have, right? We always say it's the proud boast of our system, of our, of our criminal justice system, that we would rather see 
10, 15, 100, a million uh, guilty people go free than see a single innocent person get railroaded to a bad conviction or to a, to a false conviction. That's the proud boast of our criminal justice system. And it should be. You know, for the vast run of cases that are in the system and for the cases that the system is designed for, which is basically, for the most part, American, American citizens who are presumed innocent and who we require, who we give every bounce of the ball in the sense that we put the burden on the government with respect to, you want to search their homes, you've got to show a judge probable cause. You want to arrest them, you've got to show probable cause. You want to convict them, you've got to show proof beyond a reasonable doubt and the jury has to be unanimous. We put a very high burden on top of the government in proving criminal offenses. But that's because we'd rather see the government lose. I mean, that's our, that's, that's our basic approach to it. We would rather see the government lose than see an innocent person wrongly convicted. And that's why our system is the envy of the world. But when you're in a national security situation rather than a law enforcement situation, your assumptions have to be different. We can't take the position in a national security situation or a war situation that we'd prefer to see the government lose. In that kind of a context, the government has to prevail. Otherwise, all of the rights and liberties that we, that we protect, that we rely on, including our criminal justice system, stand a chance of perishing. So we don't want to have the rules that apply in a national security context transferred over to the courts so that we lose the protections that we should have in that context. But neither is it sensible to try to fight a war by criminal justice rules. And the biggest one, the biggest challenge in all of this, the biggest problem that we have in all of this uh, is information. Um, excuse me for just a moment. Under due process rules that apply in criminal court, the government has to turn over to the defense prior to trial any statements that's been, that have been made by the defendant and any statements that have been made that, that are in the government's possession that could be used to, against the defendant in the trial, you know, statements of his co-conspirators. You have to turn over all of the physical evidence that you intend to prosecute. Um, if it's a conspiracy case and um, you haven't identified all the conspirators by indicting all of them, say like it's an Al-Qaeda situation where there are thousands of members of Al-Qaeda and you have four people on trial, you have to give the government, you have to give the defense prior to trial a list of unindicted co-conspirators. Because under our law, a person can be convicted of conspiracy on the basis of statements made by people who aren't in court on trial. You have to turn that information over. If you have anything in your files that can be used by a clever defense lawyer to suggest that the defendant is innocent, that has to be turned over. That may sound broad as I've described it. I haven't done it justice. Because innocence in a criminal trial is not just something that shows the person is actually innocent. The burden of proof is on the government in the criminal trial, right? So even if you have information that doesn't show that the defendant is innocent, 
if it is inconsistent with the government's theory that it's presenting to the jury, the theory of guilt, you have to turn that over because it can be used to chip away at the government's theory. It's, it's considered to be impeachment information. So when you try to prosecute terrorists who are affiliated with a global terrorism network in civilian court, it's a constant battle to try to keep our most precious intelligence information that we have about the organization because in theory, anything about Al-Qaeda, anything we have in our intelligence files about Al-Qaeda would be relevant to the existence of Al-Qaeda. And any false statements that may have been made by intelligence sources about Al-Qaeda or suspect statements, whether they're true or not, if they could help the defense at trial, they have to be turned over, right? Think about the war crimes trials of the past. The Nuremberg trials, which is one of the reasons that everybody say we have to, you know, we have to bring these guys in and give them due process. Well, the Nuremberg trials didn't happen until the enemy was defeated. You know, we didn't give the Germans intelligence on what we had on the Germans in the middle of the war, which only would have made them more efficient at killing us. Yet that is what we do in the civilian justice system. When you bring terrorists in while the conflict is ongoing, you are giving them our intelligence product. Let me give you an example. Um, I mentioned unindicted co-conspirators a couple of minutes ago. Um, about a week before we went on trial, um, we were ordered, and this is standard in any big conspiracy case, we were ordered by the court to turn over a list of unindicted co-conspirators to the defense. So we compiled a list of about 250 persons and entities that we might cite during the trial as unindicted co-conspirators, as people whose statements might be put in in order to prove the guilt of the defendants. We now know, because of subsequent prosecutions, including the embassy bombing prosecution, that within a week, or I'm sorry, I'm, over, I'm exaggerating, two weeks of giving that list to the defense, it was in the hands of Osama bin Laden's chief assistant uh, who managed to get it to him. I think it was by fax. I can't remember exactly if that was the, the, the trajectory of it. But bin Laden, to make a long story short, bin Laden had the list within about two to three weeks after we had given it out to our defendants. We didn't even know who Al Qaeda was at that point. There we, we had, a, state, we had a, a tape in our trial where they talked about Al-Qaeda, probably the first mention of Al-Qaeda uh, in any piece of evidence that the government had. We didn't identify it until it was in Arabic and it was fast, until we captured somebody in Al-Qaeda three years later and he said, oh yeah, that's Al-Qaeda. We didn't even know we had it, right? I, Osama bin Laden's name was on the list that I put out. Um, we didn't know virtually anything about him. We knew he was a shady <coughs> potential terrorism financier who may have contributed money to Saeed Nasser's defense. Nasser was an underling of the blind sheikh who, uh, had, who was the guy who killed Meyer Kahani. But we didn't know anything to speak of about bin Laden. We knew enough to, to know that uh, as our trial unfolded, and everyone knew it would be a very long trial, uh, it was possible that we could come up with things that would make him relevant. And if you, 
If you make a mistake as the prosecutor and you leave someone off the co-conspirator list, if you try to prove something about them two months later, the judge says, uh-uh, you don't get to do that. You didn't give them notice. So you're over-inclusive on this thing, right? Because you're not usually dealing with mass murderers. You're dealing with bankers. You know, nobody cares if you, if you give them too many names. But in this context, what happens when you give them too many names? Well, what happened in this case was the list ended up with bin Laden. And what do you think bin Laden did? What would any good organizational leader do? They went to school on the list, right? Because these are people who weren't charged yet. So they wanted to know, how did these people get on the government's radar screen? And they adapted the things that could have given us a line on these different people who they suddenly discovered were on the government's radar screen. Now, what, what people who you know, think we need to do this by ordinary due process rules may not appreciate is that Al-Qaeda doesn't have due process. Okay? If there's three guys and they think one of them might be the informant, the best way to handle it is to kill all three of them. You know? And a lot of what we know is, is not just from human resources, it's from things like bank records and the like. So what happens? If you've been having your meetings in a place that you think maybe they got a bug in here, you stop having your meetings there. If you've been using a bank account to move money and you think that's how they got tipped off, you stop moving the money around that way. The point is that every day that you go forward with a trial in court, no matter how much you try to protect classified information and other national defense information, you can't orchestrate, you can't script a criminal trial. You can't control the, the expanse of the discovery rules, and you certainly can't control the things that come out of the mouths of the witnesses. So the trial becomes a go-to-school-on-America course for the enemy, which is a crazy thing to do when you're in the middle of the conflict and you haven't defeated the enemy. But that's what we did. So after 9-11, there was a move to change it. Uh, and it was, a, it was fitfully done. Uh, and it, in a lot of ways, it was, as you would expect, um, inconsistently implemented. Uh, and it has proved to be a disappointment. I mean, everybody realized, I think, that terrorism presented much more like a war than it does like a crime. But it's not a perfect fit for either. Uh, but what we tried to ask the military to do uh, on the dime while they were already conducting operations uh, in Afghanistan and later in Iraq was, and when you guys get around to it, could you also build a court system for trying terrorism cases for the thousands of people that at one point or another were detained? It was not a fair burden to put on them. And here again, politics intrudes, right? The Justice Department and many people in the Justice Department continued to feel the same way that I felt when I first got involved in this, which was that it was very important to bring these worst of the worst uh, into our courts, give them gold-plated, uh, A-level due process, and show the world uh, that this is how we treat our enemies versus how um, they treat us. It's a sweet story. 
And it's actually in many ways an inspiring story. I, I was certainly inspired by it, especially if you're in the courtroom doing it. You think this is like a mission from God. The problem is the other guys think they're on a mission from God too, and that's to kill all of us. And they're not impressed by these you know, great aspirational tropes we have about the importance of bringing people into our system and, and convicting them with our heads held up high. Um, what they want is the intelligence information so that they can kill more Americans. I mean, that's, that's the real world that intrudes. And I hate to say this because I thought it was a wonderful idea, but you know, after being up close and seeing how it actually operates, um, it ain't that way. So nevertheless, a lot of people in the Justice Department continue to have that aspirational view of the world. And um, from a somewhat more uh, venal standpoint, they also like having the cases. There's nothing like being a lawyer and having one of these cases. It's like you know, getting asked to pitch the seventh game of the World Series. Nobody wants to give that up. Uh, so the Justice Department was not very helpful to the military when the Justice Department was really needed uh, to help them uh, with this massive uh, job of trying to construct a military system that was fit for the conflict that we were in. Um, so we had, a, instead of having people working together, we, we basically had um, people at loggerheads. Um, but the idea was essential. And I think the idea remains, uh, I'm going to argue a little bit in a few minutes for, for a hybrid kind of system. But the idea behind the military prosecutions remains essential to any successful model for handling the legal aspects of counterterrorism, which are mainly detention and trial. What, what specifically had to happen with the transition from ordinary law enforcement to a military system was to supplant, to the extent it was practical to do this, the laws of war in favor of the due process rules. Why is this essential? In the criminal justice system, when you detain somebody, the person has to be brought to the nearest available magistrate promptly. If he is in custody under arrest, he has to be given Miranda warnings. You basically have to tell him, you don't need to talk to me. You can have a lawyer, and if you don't have enough money to have a lawyer, we'll get you a lawyer to tell you not to talk to me. But that's basically what we tell people which is fine in the criminal justice system, but if you're trying to get fresh intelligence from somebody who may have it in a battlefield context, you don't want the first thing you tell them is you don't have to talk to me, and if you're stupid enough to talk to me, we'll get a lawyer to tell you not to talk to me. That is not something that's gonna work on the, on the battlefield, right? Any more than turning it into, uh, you know, what's, a, what's that series of shows, the CSI, you know, where, you can't go to the battlefield and kind of rope it off with that yellow tape, you know, and, and pick up every bullet fragment and scratch your initials in it like the eight. You can't do that, right? It's not, a, it's not a law enforcement context. So the laws of war do two very important things. Number one, they allow you to detain enemy combatants until the conclusion of hostilities. And what that ends up meaning is you hold people without any idea of when you're going to try them, because, shockingly, wars don't come with an end date. 
Um, you never know when you arrest somebody. You can't say, "Yo, the war is going to end," uh, you know, seven years from Saturday. Uh, that doesn't happen, right? So it means that you are holding them without a court date. Now, um, that sounds awful to people, and it's been twisted, I think, uh, contorted in a really perverse way by critics of using this system, because the impulse behind the laws of war is humanitarian. The idea is if you capture enemy operatives and you deplete the enemy's resources, the war comes to an end quicker and there's less bloodshed. That's what the idea is. Plus, if you think about it, it's really just trying to stick a legal rationale on common sense, right? You're not going to release the enemy's soldiers in the middle of a conflict if you know they're going right back to attacking you, unless you're doing a prisoner swap or something you can otherwise justify. So the idea is under the laws of war, you can detain people. Um, you have to treat them humanely, but you don't have to give them Miranda warnings. You don't have to give them a lawyer. Uh, you can subject them to interrogation. I'm not getting into waterboarding and, and uh, uh, you know, uh, creative invest uh, interrogative techniques. What I'm talking about here is being able to speak to people uh, in a civil interrogation uh, process, but one that doesn't have an end date, part of which is part of what makes interrogation effective. Uh, if I can just divert for a second, um, you know, we've had a number of people. We had the, just to take the political path of this, the, the Clinton administration wanted to treat terrorism as a law, for, law enforcement issue. The Bush administration wanted to transition it into a military justice issue. The Obama administration wanted to go back to the, the Clinton administration way of doing things. One of the ways they, they do this and say it works is in, in the years since Obama's Justice Department has been in control, we've had a number of terrorist attacks. They interrogate the suspect under what they think is a very untested Miranda exception that allows them in an emergency situation to have an extensive uh, interrogation without giving them Miranda warnings. And by extensive, they may mean a couple of hours or a couple of days, but no more than that. The reason I point this out is because my experience and the experience of any uh, prosecutor who has done, say, organized crime cases will tell you that somebody can be a valuable informant for years after they flip over to your side. And if you think about it, that's common sense. Um, when you first get somebody to open up, you have to run around and corroborate to find out whether he's telling you the truth or not. Once you find out that he's on Team America, then what happens is you can go back to him as the, the organized crime informants have been gone back to time and time again. You show them surveillance photographs. You play them recordings. They identify people for you that you didn't know before. They interpret things as code. They can be useful informants. I, I had an underboss of a mafia family who was still testifying for the government 11 years after he was captured and still was a useful informant. So the idea that you can milk an informant for everything useful that he has in the few hours that you have him after arrest and then you turn him over, give him a lawyer, and he doesn't have to talk to us anymore, you're never going to be able to get 
the kind of intelligence product that you can get by using the laws of war, where you can detain him and question him for as long as he is useful. The other issue was to try them by military commission rather than in civilian court. And uh, again, the idea here was to correct the biggest flaw in using the, the civilian system, which was the inability to protect classified information. So basically, the big selling point of the military cases, aside from the fact that it's kind of perverse in, in terms of incentive to tell people that, you know, if you in Yemen uh, get captured plotting against Americans, we may drone attack you right there and then. We won't even go to a judge and ask him if it's okay. We'll just do it. But if you happen to get here and kill 3,000 Americans, we'll give you the big gold-plated civilian trial and the lawyer and everything you need, every bounce of the ball in order to try to get acquitted. It's kind of crazy, right? Um, but the main thing about the military commissions is that you can protect classified information in a way uh, that you are not able to in the civilian system. Uh, since I want, let me fast forward a little bit because I want to get to the hybrid system. Um, I was a big proponent of the military system. And I thought it should have, particularly the military commission system, and I thought it should have been given a chance to work. It has not worked. It's been uh, it's, it maybe spectacular failure overstates it, but it has not been uh, a worthy experiment. Now, in part, that is not the uh, Defense Department's fault. Um, the left and a lot of people who are now running the Justice Department who were in private practice when this all started, um, they tried every legal means under the sun to get this system derailed and tied it up in court to such a great extent that the cases couldn't go forward. And a large part of the reason there was such delay was the fact that this stuff was tied up in litigation for years. The Supreme Court decided four big detainee cases between 2004 and 2008, which really rocked the system uh, in terms of detention and in terms of, of trial in a profound way. So it was a very difficult job to do and a, a difficult system to navigate. On the other hand, the judges have not done a good job. In the cases that we have had, the sentences have been appalling. Um, the first guy who was sentenced uh, was a bodyguard, I believe, of bin Laden's. Uh, at the conclusion of the trial, he basically got time served. Um, they sent him to Saudi Arabia um, very shortly afterwards, and he's you know, free as a bird. To give you a comparison, I had a guy in my case whose meter was ticking for exactly 40 minutes in the case. Right at the tail end of the conspiracy in my case, the last day that we, were, we did anything, um, he comes to the safe house where they were building bombs. And they asked him, are you going to join us or not? He says, I need to go to the mosque and pray on it. He came back about a half hour later and started mixing bombs. The FBI came in about a half hour later and popped him. He got 25 years. In a military system, bin Laden's sidekick gets time served and gets sent back. And in the first military trial, the judge gave an incorrect instruction of, of, of law on what a war crime is. Now, you know, there's a lot of things that maybe the military judges can't be expected to do as well as the civilian judges do, but they ought to know what a war crime is since you can't have a military commission without one. 
They gave an incorrect instruction on what war crimes were. So there have been too many of those sorts of things, and the system has not worked well. It probably could never work well because there was too, ma too many forces that were aligned against it and there wasn't a robust enough uh, defense of it. Uh, but the legal profession was uh, pretty solidly aligned against it, so it, it, it probably didn't have much of a chance uh, uh, in the first place. But I think we have to, if we're going to fix things, we have to be honest about what worked and what didn't, and that hasn't. Um, here's my suggestion, and I, have, I actually first proposed this in 2004, uh, and it's been a, a sort of a, a pet project of mine on and off for the years afterwards. Uh, I think we need a national security court, which would take the best aspects of the civilian justice system and the best aspects of the military justice system and try to meld them so that we had, instead of an endless politicized argument between people who have a, a, a strange interest, strangely passionate interest in doing this in the civilian court, and people who are just determined to do it in the military court, instead of having the political argument, we should have been constructing something that was actually designed for the conflict that we're in. Because if you're going to be honest about this, the enemy does not present as a, an ordinary defendant. That's for sure, right? But it also doesn't present as a, as, as a typical military enemy. You know, the reason the laws of war work in a conventional war is there's no doubt, there's no ambiguity about who the enemy is. You, 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 know, you grab, you capture soldiers of the other side. If they're comporting themselves in accordance with the laws and customs of war, if they're wearing uniforms and they're part of an organized chain of command and they carry their weapons openly and the like, there's no doubt about who they are. And if you hold them till the end of hostilities, then you hold them till the end of hostilities. That's what people expect in an ordinary war. The problem with terrorism is the terrorist doesn't often present as a terrorist. Uh, the terrorist not only targets civilian populations, the terrorist garbs himself as someone who belongs in a civilian population and hides there and therefore makes it more difficult to retaliate against terrorists, right, when they attack. So in theory, because they flout the laws and customs of war and that's what makes them unlawful enemy combatants as opposed to honorable prisoners of war, um, in theory, the fact that they do that should entitle them to fewer rights, right? I mean, they're mass murderers targeting civilian populations. Nevertheless, I think it's an admirable part of who Americans are, and it's an admirable part of our culture that we don't want to hold people who might be the wrong people. We don't want to feel like we're detaining someone without a date, without any ability to go into court and prove I'm not the guy that they say I am or I'm not the guy they wanted. It's the American way to think that that's wrong. I mean, almost everything in our civilian justice system is aimed at making sure if you got the wrong guy, you find that out as early in the process as you can find it out. So even though we're dealing with monsters, um, there was a very strong feeling, and this is reflected in all the Supreme Court decisions and the arguments that were made on both sides of them, uh, that some modicum of due process is necessary in order to make sure that we're holding the right people 
and that the American people can be satisfied that we're holding the right people. Because another important thing that we've learned about warfare, uh, especially since around 2004, is if you don't have, in a democracy, if you don't have political support for the war effort, you're not going to have much of a war effort. And that doesn't just go on the military side, it goes on the detention side. Part of the reason that Obama is basically, you know, opening the doors of uh, Gitmo and letting out all the worst of the worst detainees is people have just had it. They don't even want to hear about it anymore. Right? Because they're not invested in the war the way they've been in prior American wars. So I think that what we need to have is a national security court that is presided over Article Three judges, that is regular Article Three of the Constitution, regular members of the judiciary. The reason that's important is, as we discussed earlier in the evening, most of the people who are operating against us and most of the people in this conflict who are a threat to the United States are not inside the United States. They're operating overseas. We have a disturbing proliferation of jihadists inside our borders, but the fact still remains the overwhelming number of people are outside our borders. Um, that's important because what it means is if you're going to have effective counterterrorism, you have to have alliances with other countries where this threat is the most profound against the United States. And the fact of the matter is, whether it's the Europeans, it's especially the Europeans, but other countries as well, they are not going to cooperate with the military justice system. Uh, whether we think it's fair or unfair, the wrap internationally on the military commissions is that it's a unilateral executive branch show where the, where the, you know, the president and the defense department are the, uh, you know, the prosecutor, the judge, the jury, the executioner. Now that's not true. It's a caricature of what the system is. And in fact, safeguards have been put in statutorily and also at the direction of the Supreme Court uh, for the most part to make sure that before anything dispositive happens in these cases, they actually do have review in the civilian courts, whether it's review of detention or appeal of the military commission. So it's not true that it's a unilateral executive branch show, but that doesn't matter uh, in the sense that the world outside the United States, including countries that we need cooperation from, has convinced itself that it is. So that when we arrest somebody or somebody gets captured and there's any talk of extraditing them to the United States, one of the things those countries always demand is, he goes into the civilian system. You're not putting him in a military justice system. So the, the answer to, to that piece of poor information that we can't do anything about uh, is to have civilian judges preside over the system because they are a separate branch of government. They're detached. They don't take their orders from the executive branch. And there can't be a credible argument that it's a unilateral executive branch show. Plus, to be honest, we have now a 23-year record of these prosecutions. And for the most part, uh, the civilian judges have done a stellar job on them. Uh, the cases don't move along that quickly. And there haven't been that many uh, cases or that many convictions. But the cases do get steered to the end. People who deserve to be convicted get convicted. And they get sent away to sentences that are appropriate for terrorists. Um, so I think they've done a superior job to the military judges. 
they haven't been under the same constraints as the military judges, to be sure, but they have done a better job. And they are a political answer to a problem that's a very deep problem for us in terms of getting cooperation uh, in the places where we need it. And the final important aspect of this is in this war that is unlike most that we've ever um, participated in as a nation, there is not going to be ever a traditional end to it. We're not going to have an armistice with Al-Qaeda. There's no one's going to be out on a, uh, a big old ship in the Indian Ocean you know, signing a, a treaty with uh, Baghdadi. That's not ever, ever going to happen. Right? Um, in this conflict, the biggest thing, the biggest challenge is to figure out who the terrorists are and stop them from striking Americans before they can attack us, which means the biggest asset that we have and will ever have in this conflict is intelligence. And you can gather intelligence all kinds of ways. Um, you know, they have great satellites and uh, you know, ways of uh, intercepting electronic communications and wire communications and wave communications and the like. Um, you know, we have uh, people who are very sophisticated working algorithms to track uh, terrorism finances and the like. There's a lot of information and a lot of ways of getting information. Um, it's virtually impossible to get somebody into the inner, as an informant, to get somebody into the inner sanctums of Al-Qaeda and ISIS, just to take two examples. Uh, it simply takes too long to do that. And it's too dangerous. And we, can't, we don't have control over it because it's not something that's happening uh, in our own country. Um, the best and most important intelligence that we get and will always get is battlefield captures. When you capture somebody who is in the know, who may be in the process of carrying out an attack or have a line to people who are ordering attacks, that person, plus that short window of time when he still has some fresh information about other things that they may be plotting and places where they're located, that's the key intelligence uh, in the conflict. And in fact, one of the worst things I think that's been done in terms of the Obama administration's approach to the war, and I, it, it's not my intention to get hyper-political here, I'm talking about a, very, a, a practical problem. Um, they ran against Bush-Cheney counterterrorism. And one of the big things they ran against was the interrogations in Guantanamo Bay. Okay? What ends up happening is they get into office and they realize, gee, you need to have a place to hold people because we can't try them all in civilian court. Turns out that a lot of the information we have on them is not waterboarding information. It's other intelligence information that we can't prove in court. And we have all these dangerous people who, if we let them out, they'll mass murder Americans, but we can't try them. So what are we going to do? So uh, I mean, might have been nice to, to think about that before they got into office, but you know, better late than never, I suppose. Um, but the point is, I think they recognize that we have to be able to detain people. We have to be able to question them. And yet, politically, they made it radioactive to either use Guantanamo Bay or to question people outside the Miranda mode. So what ends up happening? And unfortunately, we've got some pretty reliable reporting on this over the years. When they're in a battlefield situation and they have an option to kill or capture, 
the incentives they set up for themselves under this humanitarian approach they take is to kill because killing is cleaner for them than capturing. When they capture someone, they have the, the big political headache of what to do with them. Um, when you kill someone, you know, there's no headache at all. Uh, and it's kind of weird to come out to that place when you know, we get there because people are saying we're not giving terrorists enough rights. Uh, and then they get into office and they find the, you know, the easiest thing to do is drone everyone. Um, but that's, that's where we're at. And hopefully we'll get to a place where common sense can prevail. Uh, if we get to that place, what we will have to recognize is whatever legal structure we adopt has to enable us to question people for as long as they're useful intelligence sources before you introduce counsel into the mix. And if that process has to be overseen by a court, that's not the end of the world as long as you have a reliable court and you have a good basis to think that somebody actually is an enemy combatant. But we have to be able, there's nothing that's more important in this conflict than intelligence. There's no intelligence that rivals the kind of intelligence you get from battlefield captures. And if we set up a system that doesn't allow us to exploit that, we're asking for more terrorist attacks. And when I say that, I'm not impugning anybody's motives or integrity. I'm just talking about the practical reality that the policies that we adopt are policies that make it more likely that Americans get subjected to more mass murder attacks. And going forward, that has to be the thing that we are most effective in preventing. So with that, let me, uh, let me leave it at that. And I'm happy to take sure, some got, questions uh, if you want. Sure, we've time for a few questions. My name is uh, Kami Bhatt, I'm in the Pakistan Spectator, and my question is, isn't it better to get these guys, uh, Islamic terrorists, uh, uh, Islamic version of justice rather than, you know, having this long trial, wasting taxpayer resources, and then having them end up in prison, where American taxpayers pay like 80 or $90,000 per year uh, for these guys to keep them in prison? Uh, if we kill them, it's a win-win situation. They go to Muslim heaven, get 70 white legion, and we get rid of the potential terrorists who could be damaging a lot more. And I'm asking this question in the perspective of a couple of uh, Muslim black kids who FBI set up, and they guard them in prison. It's totally useless. Maybe those FBI agent guards, I mean, my interest in these agencies, FBI and CIA, it was not very meaningful until 1996, even though I've been in the city for 30 years, more than 30 years. But I think FBI is wasting resources by you know, doing this kind of very childish thing. And my part, second part of the question is, don't you think that CIA should be given more leverage or leeway in domestic potential terrorist case because they do very thoughtful or meaningful cases on the basis of my experience with these two agencies? And FBI does. FBI is like a kind of superficial and just, you know, get somebody in and, and get somebody in media and get right, let, let me stop you so I can get Thanks. a couple more. Uh, I think I only addressed the legal aspects today, not the broader threat. The biggest threat that we have in this conflict isn't necessarily the terrorists. It's the, it's the Sharia activists who, who slipstream behind the terrorists. I wouldn't want to do anything that smacked of helping the Sharia encroachment agenda by saying, let them, let, let's subject them to Muslim laws. I think you know, we have to figure out what the best laws for our 
society are and the most effective ones, and then go with them irrespective of what their beliefs are. Secondly, um, understand that the FBI operating domestically operates under the strictures of the Constitution, which are designed to make it difficult to investigate people. The CIA doesn't have those kinds of strictures. So the reason that sometimes I think the CIA um, in many ways looks like they're able to get things accomplished that the FBI isn't is they're not operating under the same strictures. And, you know, look, there's a history. The FBI has done wonderful things, unbelievable things. They've done awful things. CIA has the same kind of history. There's no, I mean, this is about as human a, a process as there is. So. My question is about seems to me like if we put them in any kind of trial, we lose the ability to go back and glean information from them. Um, as long as the, the war is going on, it, it, it just seems to me like we shouldn't even be, I, I, don't, I don't know if that... No, no, I think, and it's important because I think, you know, you can bifurcate this debate. Um, to me, the, the detention piece is much more important than the trial piece. So I, I've been saying for years that the fact that we designate someone to be an enemy combatant and therefore detain them under the laws of war, don't give them a lawyer, and deem ourselves able to continue to interrogate, that's not dispositive of what system the person needs to be tried in. So you can hold the person for as long as he's useful and as long as it's, as long as it's not safe to try him. And then when conditions have changed, if you want to put them in the, in the civilian system at that point, put them in the civilian system. But I, I do think, and a, a lot of this discussion on my part for a number of years has been about the craziness of having trials while the conflict is ongoing, while the enemy is actually getting stronger rather than, than defeated, and where you're giving them help, which we should never be doing. Maggie? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the reason it hasn't happened, I think, is that both sides have been dug in. There have been a few people who have been open to thinking about something like this. But Democrats are essentially, for the most part, and I, this is pretty overwhelmingly the case, dug into the idea that the civilian courts do a perfectly good job. And the, as I said earlier, I think the reason for that is that whether intentionally or unintentionally, and I think there is a lot of cynicism about this, they're looking at the wrong metric. They're looking at success at the end of the trial. Does everybody get convicted? And whether everyone gets convicted has never been the issue. The issue has always been what approach should we use that make that's, that's the best thing for American national security. On the Republican side, you have a lot of people who haven't really studied this issue much which is a shame because it's been an issue for so long. Um, but there's a lot of people also who want to defend the legacy of what was done in the Bush-Cheney days, which frankly I think uh, P 
people will look back on it and historically they'll say mistakes were made, but this was the right way uh, to do it. Um, but they haven't given thought to melding the different ways of, of doing it. They want to defend the military way of, of doing it. And I just think maybe after Obama's, Every time I say something like that, I think of the two candidates who were before us. But maybe at some point after this administration, there'll be a, a point in time where everybody says, okay, those are the problems that we had. We have to put them in the rearview mirror. There may actually be a chance to, to do something with this um, when whoever the next president is finally has to deal with the authorization for the use of military force. We've been using the same AUMF for 15 years. It's outdated. We've, we've pushed it about to the far extent that you could push it, and it's got to be updated. I would be delighted uh, if this conversation were part of that effort, or at least that became a, a pretext or a reason for dealing with the, uh, the legal aspects of it, but I'm not holding my breath. Anyway, thank you all very much. I appreciate it.